when I, uh, I signed up to do the Seeky, of course, the question is, are these guys the ones with the turbans? And yes, these are the guys with the turbans um, that you'll see coming around the place. They are, um, most any time you hear a story that comes over on the TV and stuff, the first day it will be, brave Muslim does so-and-so. And then the next day you find out that the guy was a Sikh. Right, And this is very often because people see a turban and they think, oh, it must be a Muslim or something. But many, many times, um, in fact, you're dealing with a Sikhi. And the Sikh are the fifth largest religion on earth right now. So they are, there are many of them. They are around. They live among us. There, I visited a Gawara in San Antonio near the medical center. And they were really nice guys. I, uh, I really enjoyed getting to know them. So there you go. Oh, Aaron, the save. Okay. Okay. And so if you'll forgive me, I'm going to be presenting them very much historically because of the fact that the religion of Sikhi does, in fact, develop historically. They, they add to it as time goes by. And you're going to see it starts off as kind of a blend between Hindu and Muslim, but it's a lot more than that, too. So, um, you know, I'll, uh, I'll get started with the history lesson that then turns directly into a, a religion lesson here. So this is the world that the Sikhi are going to start. Um, it's the 1400s. The Mongols um, still control much of Central Asia, but they're not the same Mongols that in the 13th century swept down and began to conquer everything in their path. These guys um, have undergone a great deal of Islamification if you will. They're a lot more like the Arabic culture that they've absorbed, especially the ones that are going to get involved here. Mughal means Mongols, okay? And so these guys are still descended from Genghis Khan. Um, as time goes by, people are going to even have figureheads. They're not even going to be the real rulers, but they're going to justify their reign by having a descendant of Genghis Khan. And so the Mughal Empire is going to start moving into um, the region of the Punjab. And the Punjab is up in the very top, if you see, of the uh, Deccan Peninsula, or India. And the Punjab is the home of uh, Sikhi. And I know you guys have probably heard it called Sikhism. They prefer Sikhi. And when you learn why they prefer Sikhi, you're going to see why I prefer Sikhi too. Right? I like the idea of Sikhi because it, it means to be a learner. And if they're learners, then they're ready to be taught about Jesus. More on that later. Right? If they're a learner, then I can tell them about Jesus, and that is going to be down both of our alleys. So that's what I want to talk about. Okay, so the era of the birth of the Sikhi, um, what's going to happen is that there have been previous um, Muslim invasions up to this point. And what's happened is that the environment that the people are living in, in northern India at that time, in the Punjab, is there will be Sufi Muslims. And if you know the Muslims, those are the not super strict mystical kinds of Muslims that um, they tend to engage in a lot of mysticism and that kind of thing. They've been affected by the Hindus pretty heavily. Um, and then you have your regular Hindus running around the place. And um, in this environment, um, this guy, um, Guru Nanak, is going to come to some epiphanies. And he's going to start his own his own brand of um, holy man um, leadership. He's going to start providing guruship 
like a lot of other holy men. And he's not going to be alone. There are going to be lots of holy men that are not strictly affiliated with any specific religion at this time. But Guru Nanak and his followers are actually going to come out and make it to the modern world, where a lot of these other holy men, they're not going to make it out to the modern day, and so we don't talk about them because they don't have any followers today. But he's not alone. There are lots of people running around the place that are trying to find spirituality and some sort of compromise between this monotheism that the Sufi Muslims are bringing and this absolute garden garden of different gods that you get under Hinduism. And so he's going to have to come to some conclusions. So we have this guy, Guru Nanak, and he is the founding guru of the Sikhi. Um, he is going to have, about the age of 28, he is going to have a religious experience where they say he disappears for a couple days. He's out in the water and he disappears. And when he comes back a couple days later, he shows up and he's a guru. But this guy, Nanak, is not teaching himself. He has learned to discern something called the Guru Shabbat. And the Guru Shabbat is the sound of God the music of God, that he is able to discern in teachings all around him. Teachings from Hindus, teachings from Muslims, and teachings from other holy men that are not strictly affiliated with either Hindus or Muslims. But when he hears the sound of God and the music of God, the poetry of God, he's able to tell this is from God. And so now he's going to be able to collect things that he finds and make them into a religion where they are learning to purify themselves. And he's going to be the leader of this. Um, And so he's going to give away all of his possessions and become a traveling guru or a traveling teacher. And he's going to wander around the place and he's going to teach people. So let's talk briefly about the Shabbat. Um, These are different ways that they they describe the Shabbat, the sound that cuts the the ego, the music of God. Um, When you hear the Shabbat, it awakens your soul. Now, I want you to hear the, the, the enlightenment language that you get from the Hindus, right, where you're getting this enlightenment and this awakening, and then you can come forward as an enlightened one. Kind of like Buddha a little bit, only different. Um, he hears it directly. He says that um, not only can he hear it, but he can write songs that manifests the Shabbat uh, because of that. And so he's going to write music. And the, and the punchline to this eventually, guys, is that their holy book, the Guru Granth Sahib, is a book of music and poetry. It doesn't have narrative. It doesn't have a lot of things you might expect in a holy book like the Bible or the Quran. Instead, it's pretty much all songs, and they just hang out and they sing them, right? And that's what they do for worship. They sing the songs of God. And, um, and so, you know, you may be not expecting that, but that's, that's how it is. And so he was able to discern the Shabbat in other religions, And he claimed, one of his big claims was that no religion has a monopoly on the Shabbat. That the different religions he's run into all have the Shabbat. That the sound of God can be heard echoing amongst the Hindus and can be heard echoing amongst the Muslims. And he had no contact with Christians. You know, he's up in the Punjab and, um, you know, Christianity had been pretty much wiped out in the area for quite some time by this point. But the nice thing about Guru Nanak was that he was extremely... Um, oh, I'm searching for the word now. He was uh, practical. He believed that what you believed was supposed to change how you behaved. And it was admirable of him. Now, if you guys remember, 
um, the talk on Hinduism. Um, India is a mass of castes. Once you get through the basic castes and the subcastes, you're looking at hundreds if not thousands of different castes where everyone is stratified according to birth um, and has a different last name that says who you get to hang out with and who you don't have to talk to because they're below you and who you're allowed to mistreat because they've kind of got it coming, right? Because, you know, they were bad in a past life and so now you can let them starve to death. And Guru Nanak was, uh-uh, mm He came up with this idea of monotheism, but it's pantheism, which means that everything is God, but there's only one God. And so you have to kind of, we're going to have to talk about that a little bit, about how does that work out, right? But the first thing he's going to come to the conclusion of is if we are all one God, then how on earth are we not all equal? And so he believed that there should not be any castes at all. And so a lot of what he taught against was the caste system. He urged his followers and everyone else within the sound of his voice to abandon the caste system, that this is evil, it denies the reality of God. There should be no caste system. Everyone should be dead equal. Not just all men should be equal, but all men and women should be equal because we are all the same God. And that's the practical application of that. And while he may not be completely correct about everybody being God, he did see the ramifications of what he believed and tried to put it into practice, which is, I find that admirable when you see something that you say you believe and you put it into practice. That's to be commended. So, talking about Sikhi monotheism. So, if everything and everyone is one God, the way they reason, when you say I, what you're doing is you're introducing the concept of multiple gods, right? If you say I, this or that or the other, that's dualism, Patrick, if you guys have ever seen, um, like, um, St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. You know, that's where you make your mistake. When you introduce I into the picture, you're making more than one God. Because anytime you talk about you, that implies there's someone other than you. And that means you're dividing God into multiple parties. Right? So how could we not be equal? How could we not treat each other right since we're all the same God? This is where he's coming from. And, you know, you can see how he's reasoning. Because what he's doing is he's grabbing this idea of pantheism from the Hindus... And he's grabbing this idea of monotheism from the Muslims. And he's like trying to make a mash together, right? And so this is his attempt to make those things come together. And what he comes to is the idea that ego is a denial of the oneness of God. Anytime you have ego or you're seeking for yourself, what you're doing is you're claiming there's more than one God. You're being a, you're being a polytheist, Right? Anytime you talk about yourself, you're denying the oneness of God, and you're in error. And so this is the, this is the theological foundations on which he's going to build this religion of Sikhi, right? And of course, obviously, this means that we have, if we deal when, when we deal with Sikhi, we have a little work to do down at the ground level, because obviously God made everything. He isn't is everything, right? And so we'll talk about that in a little bit, but he's trying to be consistent with his theology there. Um, And so the experience of oneness of God is incompatible with the experience of self, right? And so they're going to constantly be trying to think about God and trying to banish this idea of me from their mind at all times. And that's going to be kind of their struggle in life, to try to get away from selfishness, which it's good to be getting away from selfishness. But it's because they believe that that is a denial of the oneness of God. And the three pillars of seeking... Um, First of all, you're supposed to remember God at all times. 
in order to remove your ego. That means you're driving down the road, you have to remember God. Um, you're like eating dinner with your kids, got to remember God, right? Be thinking about God at all times. Anytime you, you don't do that, you failed in one of the pillars of seeking, right? Because, um, oh, and the methods that they use are chanting, singing, and recitation. Uh, all of these things are going to eventually come from the Guru Granth Sahib, but obviously the Guru Granth Sahib hasn't been written yet. So they're going to have to chant and recite things that are being given by Guru Nanak at this point, right? He's their guru. He's telling them what's up. And then they're supposed to live honest, productive lives. They're supposed to work with their hands so they have to give to those who are in need. And that's good, too. I really like that pillar of Sikhism. I think that's very nice. And they're supposed to be generous to people who are in need. So these are, these are some very good moral teachings here. I kind of like that. Remembering God at all times, that would be helpful to us as well, right? So these are some pretty good, um, some pretty good teachings that Nanak came up with. And then Nanak is going to die because he's immortal and he can't even save himself, let alone save anybody else, right? So he's going to die and he's going to pass through the digestive systems of microorganisms and stuff. And he's going to pass his mantle on to a guy named Guru Angad. And Guru Angad is going to continue on. Now, instead of Guru Angad wandering around the place, giving up all of his possessions, he's going to have a lot of followers that are going to come from Guru Nanak. And so he's going to kind of hang out in the Gurdwara, and he's going to engage in um, like teaching activities. Instead of wandering around the place, he's going to have a center, and people are going to come to him. And so he's going to open schools to educate the lower castes. Now, think about that for a second. Like... Education is how you like lift yourself up in society. Now you don't have to you know, shovel cattle dung for a living. Now you can do something that's worth a little bit more and you can make a little better money. Well, of course, the Hindus would never educate the lower castes. Those guys' job is to do the dirty jobs. Why would you ever educate them? He's like, no, no, they're equal with us. Let's give them a good education. So he opens schools to teach the lower castes because he believes what he believes. And he's putting his money where his mouth is, right? So that's very admirable there. He's going to open wrestling gyms, um, mostly because he believes that a healthy body is going to result in a healthy soul and a healthy spirit and a healthy mind. And so he's going to open wrestling gyms so that these guys can get their exercise. And that's pretty good, too. And his wife is going to be heavily involved because women are equal to men in Sikhi society. And therefore, she is going to institute... The, the idea of longer. Now, she's not going to make it up. Longer is a practice that the Sufi Muslims had, where people would come in and then they would feed them. Um, so the Sufis would feed you um, if you came in. But how the, uh, the Sikh are going to change it is that they are going to feed all equally. If the Mughal emperor comes in, he's going to sit on the floor right next to that, that outcast beggar. And then they're going to get fed while sitting on the floor, just like everybody else. And nobody's better than anyone else. Everyone sits on the floor and everyone gets the same food, right? And to this day, langar is a huge part of their religion. If you go into any one of their gurdwaras, the first thing they want to do is give you some food while you sit on the floor. They would love to do that. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your gender, your caste, um, your nationality. They are down with feeding you some langar, right? They want to give you some food on the floor um, in that way. So... The Gurdwara is the Sikhi place of worship, and it's the gate to the guru. Now, unlike um, our places of worship, um, it's not, what it is, is it's a place where you're supposed to go where the guru is. 
And today, there's a book that's the guru. It's called the Guru Granth Sahib. And so you go in, and they sing in the Gurdwara, and, you know, mostly these songs from the Guru Granth Sahib, and then they feed you longer. Um, it's also a place, if there are injustices going on in society, where you meet together with your Sikhi brothers, and you talk about how are we going to change this? How are we going to stand up for the, the poor and the weak in this world? And today, it's kind of a cross between a community organization center and a church, right? Um, the gate to the guru, their most famous one we'll talk about, has four gates, one on each side, to indicate that everyone is welcome to come. You know, they don't require you to be Sikhi. If you want to show up and be any other religion, that's fine. They see divinity in all religions, which is very Hindu of them, right? Very Hindu of them. You can see that Hindu influence. And then we have Langar. Langar, and as you can see, here's a guy. He's, uh, he's a Sikh, and he's got bare feet, and he's feeding all the people that are sitting on the floor in rows. And again, everybody gets fed equally. And they, they pass out the food, and thousands of volunteers will show up without pay. They will prepare longer, and they will feed longer. It's, it's like serving in church to them or ser- serving in Gurdwara or whatever, right? They're serving their community. And everyone eats together sitting on the floor. And so this is going to be adapted from Sufi practices um, during Guru Angad, instituted by his wife. And so there you go. And, of course, Guru Angad is not going to live forever, and we're going to pass on to Guru Guru Amar Das. And so you see that the religion is evolving. They're adding to it. It's not changing in the fact that a lot of the, as they add things, it's consistent with their earlier beliefs. But things are being added as they go. So Guru Amar Das is going to write um, five prayers, which are said by the Sikhi daily. So he's going to be pretty important as far as that goes. And um, he spent most of his time fighting against Sati which, in case you didn't know, was a practice they had in India called widow burning, where when they would burn a man on the pyre, the wife would run forward and throw herself on the pyre and, um, and die there. And the practice was actually stomped out under the British Empire when they came. Um, but the Sikhs were attempting to get rid of it way back when, before the British ever showed up. Um, you know, they didn't listen to them because they weren't powerful enough to stop it, but it was something they were fighting against. Again, another admirable thing. When Christians got there, they were like, hey, this has got to stop. And the Sikh had been trying to stop it ever since, um, even before Christians ever made it there. So that's Guru Amar Das. And Amar Das didn't do all that much. And, you know, obviously he's not going to live forever or anything. So we get to Guru Ram Das, right? We got us 10 gurus, guys. So we're going to talk about our gurus. Um, He's going to found the holy city of Amritsar, and he's going to begin building um, what's going to become the Golden Temple. At the first, it's not a Golden Temple. At first, it's just going to be a regular Gurdwara, but eventually they're going to plate the thing in gold, and it's going to, get really, it's going to be a really cool-looking place. It's out on a lake, and you have to go across the bridge to get to it. It's absolutely beautiful, and it has a really, really big part in Indian history because the revolution that is eventually going to result in Indian independence from Great Britain and that movement is actually going to come when the British are going to show up and open fire on people who are protesting against them while they're in the Golden Temple of Amritsar. So that is, going to be the birth, that is going to be the birth atrocity of Indian independence. When they're like, you know what, we don't want Britain to rule over us anymore because of what happened in Amritsar. So it's kind of a very historic site um, in India. Um, and so he's going to found the city and begin building the Golden Temple. And again, the Golden Temple, this is a picture of it now. 
And it's, you know, look at the thing. It's like out in the middle, you know, it's the cities around it, but it's got this big reflecting pool. And people, see that line of people going in there? Those people are all going in to get themselves a little longer, right? They're going in to get their free food. And people are on a waiting list. Sikh are on a waiting list to get to do longer in the Golden Temple at Amritsar, because that's like the big capital city one, right? And so that's, uh, and it's got four gates, which is supposed to symbolize, like I said, anyone who wants can come in. It doesn't matter what your religion is or your caste or your nationality. They're cool with you. Come on in, have yourself some langer. And so that's the Golden Temple of Amritsar. And it's, culturally speaking, it's, it's, it's a big deal. Okay, Guru Arjan. Okay. And so he is going to compile songs um, from uh, the Sikh, the Sufi, and the Hindu. And he's going to add them to a document, which is eventually going to turn into the Guru Granth Sahib. Um, at this point, that's not what it's called, but they're compiling songs and adding songs to this grant that is eventually going to become their final guru after they've handed over. Um, and Guru Arjan is going to have the distinction of running afoul of the Mughal Empire. The Mughal are going to finally have enough of these Sikhs not being Muslims, and they're going to um, get him. They're going to say, you need to convert to Islam. He's going to say no, and they're going to torture him to death. And so he's going to die for what he believes in. And this is the sort of thing that is going to change the Sikhi just a little bit. Um, next, we've got Guru Hargobind. And Guru Hargobind is going to de- uh, develop Gatka, which is the Sikhi martial art. And he is going to teach the Sikhi to fight. But he's going to say, we only fight out of love to protect and defend. We do not fight out of anger. We do not fight out of hate. But suddenly we've added a fighting component to this religion after they tortured um, Guru Arjan to death. And he is going to fight battles against the Mughals. In fact, he's going to fight a huge battle against the Mughals. He is going to lose big. All of his sons are going to get killed on the battlefield. And then, um, you know, when the uh, Mughals send to say, oh, are you ready to surrender? He's like, no, I'm still alive. So I'm going to keep on fighting, and I'm not going to stop fighting until you guys stop being jerks, right? And so the Mughals are, the Mughals are actually going to back down after this because they're like, that guy's way too extreme. We just killed all of his kids, and he's still fighting, right? Um, and so Guru Hargobind is going to bring the military aspect into this religion. Um, oh, I didn't even have Gar- Guru Hargobind in. I apologize, guys. This is Guru Hargobind. I kept it on Arjan. Anyway, so he's going to fight the Mughals at Amritsar. There's, when you look up battles of Amritsar, you have to have dates because there's a lot of battles at Amritsar. Because people do not appreciate the, the, the Sikhs and their propensity to not um, you know, convert to Islam. That like, really annoys the Mughals, and they keep on doing that. Um, so there's Hargobind. As you can see, the guy looks a little military, right? He does. Um, and just say, I mean, I don't know any of you guys who know about the military know that if you're a Sikh, you're allowed to wear your turban. You're allowed to wear your beard, right? As a religious thing and everything. And this is going to expand to the point where some of the most revered British military units were Sikhi. And the U.S. military is glad to have Sikhi in their, in their midst because these guys, they're pretty extreme fighters, right? They take it very seriously. Um, it's part of their religion to fight to defend the weak. That's, uh, that's something that has come to be part of their beliefs. Okay, so this is Gatka, and as you can see, it involves swords and jumping around quite a bit. Um, 
Anyway, I didn't want to go into it too much, but I figured a few pictures of, uh, of what Gotcha looks like um, would, be, would be sufficient because, you know, I don't think that, uh, that we need to, like, reform their Gotcha or anything. Okay, so next up, we've got Guru Harai. And Guru Harai is kind of interesting because he's a pacifist. He's like, no, I'm not going to do harm to anybody. The battles with the, with the Mughal Empire are now over, and I'm going to be chill. But he had to have, he had to have like 2,000 bodyguards that were not under those restrictions to make sure that he kept safe because it was not a peaceful time, right? The Mughals had backed off a little bit, but people were still pretty violent. So he had a lot of bodyguards. And when he dies, he's going to, um, he's going to um, send in his son, but his son is only going to be five. And his son is going to be Guru Har Krishan. Not Hare Krishna, Har Krishan. Okay? And the reason that I say that is because if you've ever looked into, um, like, the Krishna, one of the things about Krishna is that he's a little boy, and, like, everyone adores him because he's a little boy, and he, like, steals stuff, and everyone's like, oh, isn't that so cute, right? And so Har Krishan is also a little boy. He's only going to last from the ages of five to eight. And the story goes that um, when there was a smallpox epidemic, he went amongst the people and began to heal them of their smallpox. But then he got it and died. So it's kind of a sad story. But, <laughs> but he only lasted till he was eight. But he's highly revered as one of their gurus. I'm not sure that he was able to do much other than be young and die of smallpox. But um, when he died, he said something that they interpreted to mean, you should have my great uncle, um, Teg Bagador, become the next guru. And so they did. They had his great uncle become the next guru. And so he is also, he's going to be like the going back to the beginning style guru. He's going to go back to the, uh, the, the Nanak thing. He's going to just go out and start wandering around the place and teaching people all over the place. He's going to discern the Shabbat. He's going to write down hymns. He's going to go back to the, the old ways of Guru Nanak. Um, oh, Yes. That, he also did that. Okay, so Teg Bagador, while he was running around the place and roaming, um, word reached him that a number of Hindu leaders um, were being told that they need to convert or die. And so he went to the Mughals and he said, listen, me in their place. If you can get me to convert, then they'll convert. But if you can't get me to convert, they don't have to convert. Deal? And they're like, deal. And they bring him in and they're like, now, do a miracle or we'll kill you. And he's like, I will not do a miracle. That's not right. And so then they like beat him up and they torture him. And this goes on for a while until finally they kill him. And then after he's dead, one of his messengers shows up and hands him a note. And they open the note and it says, here's your miracle for you. I underwent all that torture and I never converted. There's your miracle for you, buddy. (laughs) And so that's the story of um, Guru Teg Bhagadur. And that's going to bring us to our 10th and last human guru, Guru Gobind Singh. Now, if you're familiar with Sikh, you recognize that name, Singh, right? Because, well, we'll get to that, right? Guru Gobind Singh is going to be the last of the human gurus. And he's going to come out relatively shortly after the beginning of his reign. He's going to come out on stage, like everyone's going to be out in front of him. And he's like... He pulls out a sword and he says, who is willing to give his head to the guru? No answer. Who will give his head for the guru? Guy comes forward. 
He's like, one second. Takes him into a tent over here. They go inside. You hear, whack! And he comes out with blood on his sword. He goes, who else is willing to give his head for the guru? Another guy comes forward. Goes over. You hear, whack! Who else? Five people go into that tent. Five times he comes out, covered more and more in blood each time. And then after the fifth time, all five of those guys walk out covered in saffron robes. It is the beginning of the, of the uh, warrior saints of, the, uh, of the, uh, the Siki. The beginning of those guys that run around the place wearing a turban, not cutting their hair and all that kind of stuff. And so he is going to institute the Amrit ceremony where the people that are really serious about their faith and being a Sikhi and are willing to give their head to the guru and consider themselves already dead to defend others, those people get a special place and they get a new name. And then before his death, oh, I was supposed to show you that picture. That's like an artist's rendition of his uh, send me some dude to, to have your head taken off, right? And so he's going to have this, uh, this ceremony. And what's going to happen is that anyone who wants to be part of this has to undergo a baptism with um, Amritsar ceremony. So what happens is um, they're going to hold this in the Gurdwara. And then the five people representing the original five are going to stir sugar water with swords. Well, these people come forward and each of them is going to recite one of their, uh, their songs or their poems or something while they're, uh, they're stirring this sugar water with swords. And then they're going to sprinkle it on their heads and their eyes. And then they're each going to take a drink of the sugar water. And then that's going to be what they call baptized with Amritsar. And then they're going to be swearing the oath that they're going to live the life of a Sikhi warrior saint. Um, they get a new name. Men get called Singh, which means lion. And women get called Kaur which means princess. And I want, I want to give you guys the implications of this because people's surnames are indicative of their caste. Remember that equality thing? This is doubling down on the equality thing. If you want to be a Sikhi warrior saint, you have to give up your caste. You have to be the same as everyone else. We're all Sings. We're all cowers. We're all equal. We're all family. We're all one, right? And so they're doubling down on that equality thing by giving everyone the same surname. Because you have to abandon your old caste in order to take it. So that's why there, are, there were initially, or at least if you talk to the ones who have been baptized with Amritsar, and they say, why did the other people not decide to do this? Probably because they were clinging to their old caste. Obviously, there are different points of view from people who have not chosen to undergo this ceremony. Because many Sikhs to this day still do not undertake the Amritsar ceremony, right? Or the Amrit ceremony. Some choose to do this and some don't. Um, it's just a commitment that some choose to take and some do not. Um, and they have disciplines. They have uncut hair. They don't eat meat or drink alcohol. Um, they remain sexually pure. They do their daily prayers, if you recall the ones that were written. And then they have five Ks. And the reason they're five Ks is in English, um, they all start with K. Obviously, their alphabet doesn't have a K in it, so it's in English. starts with K. Um, but these are their things. First of all, they've got Kish, which is uncut hair. Um, and underneath, they wrap their uncut hair up in a turban. Um, and they have kangha, which is a wooden comb they place in their hair under the turban. 
So you might not see it or anything, but it's in there. After their hair is all like wrapped up in a little bundle, they put a wooden comb in there, and that's to symbolize um, that they accept nature and they're not changing it. And then the wooden comb is they accept that they're not going to become like bush boogies or um, like wild men or be unkempt. They're keeping themselves clean, right? You know, yeah, they, they, they're, they're going to keep themselves clean and groomed despite the fact they're not cutting their hair. So they'll have long beards, or the women won't have long beards, obviously, right? But they will also not cut their hair, right? The point is, is that they're not cutting their hair. And guys, the, the reason I bring that up is because this extends to women too. You know, like, like I mentioned, there are women who take on this warrior saint thing as well. And they are considered every bit equal with the men when it comes to this, right? They have a special name as well. And um, they also wear the turban and they do all these things. Um, and then they keep the kirpan. Now, back in the day, of course, they would have a full-size sword. Today, they keep like a little like symbolic sword that they keep about themselves somewhere. Um, and then they have a small metal bracelet called the kara. And then they have, um, they have this in common with the Mormons. They have holy underwear. So they have um, the kachara, which is like some modest cotton shorts which it's supposed to be to symbolize your modesty and your continued purity and that kind of thing. But I just think it's interesting that, you know, they and the Mormons share having special ritual underwear. Okay. And the last thing he did um, before he died is he handed his guruship over to the Guru Granth Sahib. He put the finishing touches on it and he made the Guru Granth Sahib, which is now their guru from then until now. After um, Gobind, Gobind Singh... Uh, died, the guru for the Sikhi have ever since been the Guru Granth Sahib. It is a holy book that is filled with mostly music and poetry um, as a general rule, and so um, they will gather around. And here's where it gets a little bit weird sometimes when you're watching it, because a lot of people think that they are venerating or worshipping the Guru Granth Sahib, and they would argue they're just showing it the respect that you're supposed to show a guru. But when they have it out, while they're playing the music and stuff, and we'll talk about that, um, they'll have it up on a throne. And while they're playing their music, someone will be waving a fan over it. Like you would a monarch back in ancient India. You would wave a fan over your monarch, right? This, they feel, is very respectful. They put it to bed after the day is over. They take it. And as it goes by, everybody like genuflects to it and everything, which they feel is just how you're supposed to treat your guru, not worship. That's how they view it. When I was there, it looked a lot like worship. I'm not going to lie. It's what it looked like to me. But maybe they were just being extremely respectful. That's what they say they're doing, is being very respectful. Um, nonetheless, it, that's kind of how it looked like to me. Okay, I do have the Guru Granth Sahib up. So it's a holy book um, of the Sikhi. It has its songs and poetry. And it's actually full of songs that they compiled, not just from the Sikhi, but also from Sufi Muslims and from Hindus. There's Hindu and uh, Sufi Muslim stuff in there too because they believe that there's the echo of God there. As a result, their main form of worship is kirtan, which is music and singing, um, which is the main form of worship for the Sikhi. And, you know, interestingly, when I went, um, they said on their website that they were having kirtan. And so I showed up, and they're like, oh, no, that's just, like, during this season. During the season you're coming, during the summer, we don't do kirtan at this time. And I'm like, oh, that's too bad. And I was going to go, and they're like, you know what? We'll play some music for you. And so they went in and played a 15-minute set for me of, kirt of uh, kirtan, um, and I was the only person there. 
right, other than the Sikhi that were manning the, uh, the Gurdwara. It was very polite of them to do that, right? And um, what they use is this thing called, the, mostly it's the harmonium, which is kind of like the bagpipes, because you, it's like got a little box and you like pull on the little things on the registers and stuff, and then they play it, but then they have to pump it a little bit while they're going. And I have to say, it's beautiful. They really do a very good job. And if they've got another guy there, they oftentimes will have a guy playing the drums or something, right? And it's not necessary that you play the harmonium, but they play the harmonium very well. Um, if ever I was going to sign up, you know, one of my kids to like learn how to play the harmonium, I'd totally find a Sikh. Right? Those guys really know what they're doing when it comes to playing the harmonium. And I mean, just like find one of their guys that will play because they, they, they've got, you know, I mean, what, San Antonio is like the premier good war or anything? The guy did a really good job. Although the funny thing is, is I was in there and the guy waving the little fan over the Guru Granth Sahib um, while the playing was going on, he got a phone call and he took it <laughs> right in the middle of the ceremony. He's like, oh, like you know, the singing is going on. He's like waving the flag. He's like, he starts like talking to this guy and keeps on waving his fan and everything. I don't know. I don't know. I guess you're allowed to do that. Anyway, so I got some pictures of um, some people here um, playing the harmonium, um, as you can see, and that was that was fairly similar to what I saw. I mean, not those exact guys or anything, but that's kind of how it looks. Um, okay, a little more a little more history um, in. 1748, the Durrani, which were an Afghan dynasty, um, invaded the area and drove the Mughals out. Um, and so this is a pretty long time that the Mughals were in charge. But by this point, they've weakened, and the Afghans are going to come in in various tribes and start taking the place out. And the Sikhi are actually going to rise up against them. And the, the result is that they're going to drive the Afghans out, and the area is going to come to be controlled by a number of Sikhi-dominated small states, like around the different cities and stuff. So there's going to be a number of Sikhi states um, because they're going to hand the Durrani a number of defeats. Uh, they were unprepared for how militaristic and warlike these Sikhs were going to be. These dudes, they, they handed them several severe defeats, and they're like, nah, we're not, we're not staying around here. But they're going to have driven the Mughals out, and so we're going to find that they're going to end up taking over the region. For a while there, the Sikhi are going to take over the Punjab. And so, as you can see, up there in the top, the Sikh Empire, Kashmir, Pashwar, Amritsar, Lahore, Mutan, and then it's right there on the border with Pakistan. And you know the Kashmir that they're always fighting with? I don't know if you guys know that Pakistan and India are always fighting over the Kashmir. Well, that's all in this, uh, this Sikhi territory that they were in control of, and that you know the Muslims and the Hindus are still fighting over to this day. It's actually you know, kind of seeky. Um, and so they're going to, by the time the British are going to show up, there is going to actually be a Sikh empire. Now, you have to assume if somebody's going to form an empire that some, some dirty deeds are going to have to be done. That's normally how that works. But I have no information on that. What I know is that the Sikh have an empire by the time the British show up, and there are going to be a number of battles, and the Sikhs are going to lose just like pretty much everyone else running into. By this point, the British have um, superior firepower, and it's just, you're just no standing up to them because they've got um, such superior weaponry. Um, and so they are going to be um, defeated and folded into the British, um, under British rule. Initially, they're just going to have to submit to the British suzerainty, 
but eventually they're going to get folded into the East Empire Company and into the national um, government of India. Um, Okay, guys, you know the Battle of the Alamo? This is a lot like the Battle of the Alamo. Okay, the Battle of Saragahari. What happened is that the Afghan tribes are coming across again, but this time they're coming against Britain and Britain's control. And there's a couple of forts that they need to control in order to keep their border with, uh, with um, Afghanistan and with the people that are living there. And the only thing standing between them and taking those forts, because it's kind of a surprise attack, is a fort with 21 Sikhs in it. 21 Sikhs, and we know what goes on in it because one of them has one of those little um, mirror things like that you can signal to the next fort on. And they're like, hey, there's like thousands of these guys that are coming across the border. You guys need to get some reinforcements. And they're like, can you hold them off? And they're like, we'll do our best. And so these guys are like tell, saying, oh, they've broken through this line and we're fighting as well as we can. And, you know, now they're at the inner gate and we're fighting them off. And the last message is permission to put down my lamp. All the others are dead. Permission to take up my weapon and fight. And um, basically, they were able to hold the Afghans off until it was possible to get reinforcements to those fortresses. So they are going to be successful in what they do. They are going to die down to the last man. Um, when the Afghans are asked about it, they say they feel that they lost about 180. But after the British retook the fortress, they said they found about 600 dead bodies around this fortress that these 21 Sikhs held. And anyway, I'm just, you know, so while we're on Sikhs here, I just want to talk about, like, it's kind of like the Battle of the Alamo. Because these guys were, I mean, these guys were some of the most revered soldiers that the British had. You know, to this day, they honor the memory of these guys because these guys are very much, um, they were like the elite um, Indian troops that they had, the Sikhs were. Um, now, in modern day, moving forward fairly quickly, there is a Sikhi separatist movement. And recently in the news, I don't know if you heard this, but there was a Sikhi separatist in Canada who got assassinated. And um, the government of Canada is actually blaming the Modi government for having him assassinated. And I don't know what kind of proof they have or anything, but that's kind of what's going on right now. Is There's a whole movement amongst the Sikhs that believe that they should be allowed to have the Punjab for themselves. And then the Hindus can have their part and the Muslims can have their part, but they should be allowed to hold the Punjab. And obviously, this doesn't sit very well with the Modi government because they're Hindu nationalists. I don't know if you guys remember, but we had some missionaries. They got kicked out of India because they don't want to allow Christians into the country any more than they have to because they want everyone in India to be Hindu, right? So they're, they're, um, that's kind of the political situation. So you kind of are like, well, maybe they are, you know? But I don't know. I haven't heard any evidence to uh, implicate the Modi government other than Canada thinking it might be the case. Yeah. To clarify what the Punjab is, is that like a city? The Punjab is, is that, see that area up there in yellow? That it's kind of on the border with India. It's kind of got a little Pakistan in it. I don't know if you know Kashmir and, uh, and uh, Pakistan are always fighting over the Kashmir, right? Well, it's, it's, it's part of the Punjab, right? You see this Amritsar is their big place, Lahore, Milan, Peshawar, all that area in there. Is, um, is considered the Punjab. It's the, it's the homeland of the, uh, of the Sikhs. 
Not that they all live there anymore, right? Lots of them live in Canada. Lots of them live in the United States. They live all over the place. Fifth largest religion in the, in the world right now. So there are a lot of them. Um, but that's what they're doing right now. There is a movement where they're thinking, well, you know, when you guys partitioned, uh, the, you know, when Britain partitioned India, you know, how come you didn't give a part to the Sikhs? You gave some to the Hindus. You gave some to the Muslims. How come you didn't give us any, you know? And so, you know, obviously Britain's not involved in that anymore. So, you know, complaining no fair doesn't work out. So let's talk about reaching the Sikh. Um, first of all, I believe that, uh, you know, if you come in and tell somebody that they stink and you hate them or that their religion is garbage, that you're not going to, you're not going to get very far, right? You, uh, I want to start off with affirmation, talking about what's good in their worldview, because instead of chucking their whole worldview, I just want them to excise the parts that don't involve God and Jesus and put in the parts that do, right? And I want to leave the good things intact, like a lot of this practical expression, uh, expression of their religion, their bravery, the equality, the feeding the hungry. I think that, all, that stuff is honorable. It should stay intact, right? And so I, uh, I would affirm, uh, first of all, that Punjabi culture is, like, it's interesting. It's worthwhile. They don't have to become Americans. They don't have to become British. They can stay as Punjabi as they like. You know, keep on wearing those turbans. You know, that is some, that is some cool culture. And I, and I would totally affirm the culture and all that kind of stuff. Their history is fascinating. Um, they come from people that are very brave and have done brave things, and they should be honored for that. Um, and the fact that they're seeking, they're the ones who learn to purify. And that means they're willing to learn. They're gurus came to them and new gurus gave them new information and they've grown and they've learned more as time goes by and we have information that is of vital interest to them if they would like to know how to purify because we know the source of that purity we know where that purity comes from um when they say that they're learning to purify they're acknowledging the fact that they recognize that they are not pure that they need to be purified and they're trying to figure out how to purify themselves. And the good news we have is that purity is a gift that's given to you when you sit on the floor and God hands it to you like longer, right? He hands it to you like it's longer. So each guru added to the understanding and um, you're acknowledging that, uh, the fact that you, know, you need purity. And we have to talk about this Hindu concept of God right off the bat, because the fact is, is that everything is not God, right? But you can affirm this. You know, obviously, when you see other human beings, you recognize the divine when you see them, right? And it's not because they are God. It's because they're made in the image of God, right? And so if you're going around the place without um, revelation and knowing you know, and people tell you, oh, the reason that you're seeing the divine in other men is because they are God. That's a mistake you can make if you don't understand that they were made by God in his image. And so when you see the divinity of man, you're seeing the image of God. And that's why you're seeing that. That's why you're hearing the tune of God, the echoes of God, and seeing the divinity of people, right? Because there is the mark of the divine on people because we're made in the image of God. But no, everything is not God. God made everything, right? And so that's something that has to be cleared up before you can move on uh, with all of that. Um, and then you can talk about the fact that Abraham heard the voice of God. 
not just the echoes of God, but he heard God. And God came to him and said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Not just the Jews, everybody. The equality that Guru Nanak recognized was to be, was to be seen. Everybody, rich or poor, male and female, God came to bless the entire world through the offspring of Abraham, right? And so, like, I'm trying to think about how, like, Paul, who comes in and sees the unknown God, I can just, like, say, here, this is what you've been looking for the entire time, right? And that blessing that comes for all people, the way that the, all these people are be, going to be blessed, is obviously Jesus, the blessing onto all people. And I believe that it would be extremely helpful and you know, in their worldview and very profound for them. If you talk about the fact that Jesus gave longer twice, everyone sat on the floor. And instead of having to have volunteers make the food, Jesus made the food himself. And then he handed it out. First, he handed out in the feeding of the 5,000 to Jews. And then in the feeding of the 4,000, he fed Gentiles. He fed all the nations of the world. He sat them down. He gave them longer, right? This is long before the Sufis, who they adapted it from. Jesus gave longer before anyone else was giving longer, okay? And then in John chapter 6, in John chapter 6, Jesus explains why he's doing it. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I come down from the world. You eat of this bread, you will live forever, right? If anyone who eats me, who has longer of me, will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Right? He teaches the spiritual significance that this purity that they seek, this hearing from God, comes as a gift from Jesus. Jesus hands it out. He says, just like I'm handing out the food, I hand out the spiritual purity. Right? And he teaches the spiritual significance in John chapter 6. And it's also worth pointing out that in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is praised because he has redeemed people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. And again, keying into that whole idea of equality and um, God being the God of everybody, not just God being the God of the Hindus and not just God being God of the Muslims. But God has come to save everybody. God would love to save the Sikhs, right? God is looking for the Sikhs. God wants to save the people of the Punjab. Also, Jesus defends the helpless. You know how they defend the helpless? Jesus defends the helpless. But he wins the battle, not by taking out a sword and defeating the enemy, but by giving his life for the helpless. He gives his life for the people that cannot save themselves. And he wins the victory. He defeats the enemy by giving his life, and he protects all that would come to him for shelter. He comes to protect the weak. He comes to defend the um, helpless. And here's the punchline. He claimed he was going to come back from the dead, and he did. And there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. Insert historical, fa- historical backup for the reality of the resurrection of Christ. Because, guys, as you might know, that is my absolute favorite subject to talk about because it's the gospel. Talk about that this really happened. Jesus is really God. He claimed he was going to die and come back on the third day, and he totally did it. He totally pulled it off. And so he claimed that he was God, that not only does he hear the voice of God, he is God. And when you hear his voice, you hear the voice of God, right? And if they're listening for the Shabbat, if they're listening for the voice of God, Jesus spoke with the voice of God. And everything that he says is the Shabbat, right? You should get into his word. You should find out what he has to say, because God has spoken through his son. 
He's the perfect revelation. Right? And so then you bring it into the gospel. You want to affirm what they believe um, to the point that you can. Right? Because there's a lot of admirable things, especially morally, going on with the Sikh. Um, and that there's no reason to tell them they need to abandon their, their culture or anything. But, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly fine if they would like to have their church services just sitting around the place and singing about Jesus. That's fine. You know, have your, uh, have your kirtan, right? Like sit around and sing praises to Jesus. If that's your culture and that's how you like to live it, go right ahead. But replace this pantheistic God with the one true God. And the voice of God comes through Jesus, the ultimate guru. The ultimate teacher, the one who's seen God and can tell you all about him. Not just someone who has to roam the land listening for his echoes in um, the divine that you might see in the world around you. The Bible right? can be their sword. Exactly. And they can carry their Bible sword with them. Exactly. See, the thing is, is that, you know, you can, you, this, this is, you know, you can do this all day. You can think about how does this relate into their belief system and how does this come alongside the things that they already find to be profound, which is why I came up with this whole idea about Langer, because they find Langer to be profound. So let's talk about Langer. Let's talk about Jesus giving Langer and how he teaches about it, right? And so, you know, you talk about um, the claims of Jesus that, you know, he's the only way to God. There's no other way to make it there. And, you know, the promises of Jesus, that he's paid the price, that he can give you that purity. He can give you everything that he's promised, and he's proved that he can because he's risen from the dead. Right? And, uh, you know, if they want to argue that, then that's something that's pretty easy to argue, right? Because there's 500 eyewitnesses, and none of them recanted. Not a single one of them. Right. And so anyway, that is all the stuff that I have um, about the Sikh. I hope that, um, you know, I was able to um, accurately communicate a lot of the stuff that I learned.